0: Be running up that road, be running up that hill, be running up that building. That has been in my head for weeks, weeks, all thanks to the return of Stranger Things. I'm pretty sure Kate Bush has been invading everybody's earlobes for the last... When did this come out? Doesn't matter. But if you haven't guessed it already... Or looked at the link you were clicking on to start listening to it. We're doing a podcast first this week. First as in the first TV show that we're dissecting. um, Basically because I've I've loved this latest series of Stranger Things. absolutely loved it. It's been brilliant. And then I saw this, uh, it's not the penultimate episode, is it? Season 4, episode 7. It's the last one before the mid-season break and then they're going to do like I think 2 or 3 more in July. But I saw this and I was like this is masterful. This uh I just well so I'm about to watch it again for the second time in about 2 or 3 days. And uh let's get into it. It's Goda Hawkins. Oh, I love the openings! Oh, I just breached the mic again. I love the opening uh, scene to this because it picks off exactly where uh, episode six finished. Um, so again, this is episode seven, uh, the massacre at Hawkins Lab, or chapter seven as Stranger Things call it. So it opens with a bird's eye view of Steve on the ground being attacked by those like strange bat things. Um, so it like picks up literally on the coattails of where the last, well, the last shot of the last episode was, and then like sort of slowly zooms into him uh, which you know is bringing our attention like to what the scene's going to be about it's going to be about steve in being attacked but also like creates peril by zooming in uh and then when it, all the rest of the team come over to save him um you know like nancy and uh, the rest of them they we then get a really really cool one-er for like most of the sequence so like as soon as they start like you know swinging oars and stuff and like trying to like take out these bats and stuff pretty much all of it is is a wanna. there's a cup, and there'll be a couple of points throughout where you might it might be obvious that there's a like a cut you know like a if something moves really close to the front of the screen that's normally a cut um, or if there's like a quick pan where all the sort of imagery goes blurry and stuff uh, because it's panning around really quickly that will normally be a cut but other than the, like one or two obvious ones in this one, I couldn't see where any other cuts would be. But, you know, most one will have like so many cuts in there. Well, no, not most one Some one are absolutely fine. But there, there is normally a few like stages set up in intricate shots, especially when there's a lot of like action and CGI. Um But anyway, yeah, I love a good one-er. So to open your episode with an action sequence and a one-er is just, it's just brilliant. Because I think the benefit of using something like a oneer is it keeps the, the action continuously rolling. You know, there's no, sort of like pauses for thought or pauses for comfort. You're just in there, and it's like it's like you're locked in on a roller coaster. Like you, you can't move. You can't. You got, got to get, through the ride. You know, you just got to ride the ride until it's done. When you dance with the devil, you wait for the song to stop. If I only good, make a deal with God. Anyway, sorry. I'm gonna try not to burst out into. Kate Bush, especially with my less than angelic voice. Um But yeah, so after they fight for those bats, those four the four older teens, uh, you know, Nancy and that lot, it then basically sets them up in a kind of like the, the tone of like their scenes throughout this episode is sort of like a horror survival. You know, like something like Dog Soldiers, which is a film I'm definitely gonna cover at some point. Um or Cabin in the Woods or uh evil dead which you know cabin in the woods was a big cabin in the woods was definitely inspired by um you know do you know what i mean like those kind of horror horror survival things where there's like a small group of people odds are against them you know they might be like behind enemy lines as it were in terms of them being in the upside down or um you know just uh sort of like in dog soldiers terms they're all like surrounded by like this supposedly unstoppable force it's a survival horror which is like a great sort of subgenre of of horror and this episode does it really really great for all of them and it, like I feel like every group has their own sort of like um subgenre in this in this episode like Dustin and that lot they're sort of like the comedic relief but then also like the investigators and stuff because they're I believe if I remembered rightly from watching it a couple of days ago they're sort of figuring out a lot of the um yeah yeah they're figuring out a lot like you know how does uh the the lights between you know the their world and the upside down like why why does some lights light up when someone's being killed by Vikram or or whatever it is everyone has their own little subgenre, so it's great that the that the writers have like divvied them up that way so then anytime there's a scene shift to a different location like be it Hopper or whatever um then we're getting like a tonal shift as well so it keeps it really entertaining for the for the audience oh and if you weren't already aware almost six minutes in yeah there's going to be a hell of a lot of spoilers so if you haven't watched this episode of Stranger Things then yeah and you don't want spoilers then stop bloody listening I won't have it just want to point out as well it after we get the title sequence and everything you know as is the Stranger Things theme tune um yeah, a little bit sort of after you know we we get back into some action. Um, there's the bloke who's being tortured, you know, where they're trying to find out where Eleven is and stuff. Um, shortly after that, it pops up saying, "Written and directed by the Dufa Brothers." Is it Duffer or Duffer? Whatever, the guys who invented Stranger Things, them brothers, yeah. Um, and I do one of the. I think one of the reasons this episode excels so much is not only is it like one of the. You know climactic episodes in the sense that it's like mid-season break, or if this was the very last episode in the in the season, it would still be you know a fantastic way to finish it, kind of thing. Although I'd be hella annoyed because of the cliffhanger at the end. Um, but my point is, sorry, when when something is directed by the people that wrote it, I always think it excels so much more than anything else. Um, so. Because, like, when when you're writing something, you're writing it with a certain like tone and execution in mind. Most of the time, at least when I write stuff, that that would be the case, and I would imagine it would be the same for the writers. Because you always hear stories about like uh, like Stephen King, for example. Um, you know, writing was it The Shining. He obviously he wrote the the book, and then when they turned it into a film, he was like, "This is horseshit. This isn't how it's supposed to be," because it wasn't executing his vision. But when you're the writer and the director, you know, like Christopher Nolan, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, because he, you know, at least writes the screenplays for a lot of his stuff, you're executing it in the way that it was written, if you see what I mean. So you've got a a greater command over the source material. So loads of the other episodes in this season have been fantastic. There was one in particular that had, I think it was the one just before this, where there were so many like, awesome uh, edit points. I'm going to call them edit points because I can't remember what they're actually called. But uh, what I mean by that is, like, there was one where the Papa character, who's, you know, got 11 in that lab trying to get her to regain her powers, um, he, like, boops her on the nose, and then the cut goes from the point that he, like, boop with his finger on her nose. It then cuts straight to him, like, poking in numbers on a keypad to, like, access, you know, like, open a door or something. So it's like, boop, nose, boop, 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 on the keypad. Like, quick sort of uh, edit points like that. Um, And then there are more of them in this episode as well that the Doofa brothers are are directing. So what I'm saying is that the other episodes haven't been awfully directed or anything, but this one in particular is like, it's the Doofa brothers with their material that they wrote and they're executing it exactly the way that they wanted it to be done. And I think that's part and parcel why this episode is just it might be my favorite stranger things episode ever um having said that i've only ever seen like all of them all the way through sort of once so if i'm if i went back you know i remember there's a couple of episodes from season 3 with um billy was it was it daker daker something the guy who played billy just you know if well, again spoiler alert, but i'm sure you've already seen it by now but like the episode where he dies you know madness madness but yeah this episode's ex- exceptional so um if i only could make uh, sorry (laughs) i'm gonna carry on now um because i've just rambled for a bit about writing and directing (laughs) Uh, so i'm gonna try and ramble through these points quickly but because then we move to like 11 being in the lab and stuff and i feel like her sort of like genre subgenre uh for her like sort of story arc in this episode is very much like a kind of psychological thriller you know um, where there's like those creepy flashbacks and there's the mystery of like well what was the thing that happened you know what what are all these flashbacks about what was all this like uh you know she keeps freaking out so it's all very psychological horror i can't think of sorry not psychological horror psychological thriller um can't think of any examples that it directly reminds me of but i did think of them the other day when i watched it so if you as the listener can like jump back in time and then go into my mind state when i watched it on friday then you'll know exactly what films i was thinking about um (laughs) i feel like i want to say ex machina but i haven't seen ex machina so i don't know why anyway um but the papa character has a really really cool bit of dialogue where um It basically reminded me of like spiritual practices and and like spiritual teaching, you know, Um, if you're not familiar with any of that, like um, shadow work, um, you know, assessing the ego and that kind of stuff. But I won't I won't get into it because, you know, you could do hours of podcasting just on that topic. But here's a bit of dialogue is um, she says something like, oh, I'm a monster. And he's like, oh, people aren't. I'm going to paraphrase what he says, but he says something like. It's not as simple as good and bad you know good people and monsters um people aren't so easily defined you you can't be a whole person unless you identify and assess all parts of yourself the good and the bad because then you work through the bad to become a whole person which is exactly what shadow work in the spiritual sort of teachings are you know shadow your shadow self is like your your negative self like maybe if you're defensive or impulsive or whatever it might be and the point is that you identify it you know and then start working through it you know um again I won't go too far into it because that could be a very long tangent but it was a really really nice bit of dialogue from him it's probably the most I've ever liked his character because I do think his character is a bit of a you know he basically imprisons young children so (laughs) there you go (laughs) but um yeah and then he says uh this place isn't a prison meaning the literal building that they're in this is and then he points to her head so he's saying like the world you're in isn't a prison your mind is the prison and i do think that's also true as well for a lot of things especially in a sort of spiritual sense so awesome bit of dialogue there by the doofa brothers quick shout out to gate and maserato who plays uh, sorry matarazzo who plays uh dustin or dusty buns as his girlfriend would say uh Okay, I just want to throw this out there quickly as a caveat. Like, all the young performers in Stranger Things are great. They're all class. But Dustin is my favourite, partly because of his character, but partly because the actor is... The execution that um, Gaten has is fantastic. And you can tell, like, especially in this season, he's just having a whale of a time. Like, when we go to their first scene where they're basically being interrogated by the parents and the police to see why they were at the lake the other night and stuff... Um, They're like, one of of the kids is like, oh, we were just going for a walk. And then one of the police is like, you were going for a walk at the lake at 9 p.m. And then Dustin, he just goes into like the highest pitch. He's like, just go to the lake for a little swim, you know. (laughs) It's just so funny. He he has so many brilliant moments in this entire season where he's just full of, especially his relationship with Steve. They are proper funny together. Their bromance is hilarious. Um again, like pretty much every actor in this season and uh, when this whole franchise like nails what they're doing. Um, but yeah, him in particular, hilarious. I love Hopper's arc in I do I pretty much love everything they do with Hopper. Um but I love his arc in this, you know, being in that Russian prison. So we get the whole like, you know, uh it's it's, it's the classic like escape thriller, you know? any any time there's something to escape from, um, you know, be it prison break or whatever, it is, it's the, that classic sort of formula. But then they throw in, like, monster slaying as well. So why not? Um, but then that first sort of scene that we get back to that Russian prison in this particular episode, and, and he has another nice conversation with um, uh, the bloke who played the assassin in Game of Thrones. What's his bloody name? You know, the one who's like, the man the man with the faces and all that with Aria, whatever, you know who I'm talking about. The, the only other Russian guy that he talks to in the whole prison, um, that where they start having another like sort of intimate chat. And I definitely, I've definitely spoken about this sort of camera setup in, in other podcasts, but instead of it being, it, it's a two, four in the sense that, you know, it's like back and forth, one shot on them back to the other one, you know, just sort of cut in between. Um, but these ones are done from behind. So they are dirty singles, which like I've said before is when it's a single, but it's somewhat dirtied by you know, like the head and shoulders or whatever of the person they're talking to. So these ones are done like, when it's looking at the Russian dude, it will be like just from behind Hopper's head. So we see the back of Hopper's head and shoulders, and then most of the side of the Russian's face in frame. And then when he turns to look at Hopper, we see more of his face, exactly the same for Hopper's shots. You know, the back of the Russian's head, looking at Hopper. Um, and what that does, because they are having, like, a quiet, intimate chat, like, the things they're talking about, they're a bit personal, um, so they probably don't want other prisoners overhearing, but then they also are talking about, like, the fact that they're, they've they got this plan in place to try and kill one of the Demogorgons that the that the prison holds, right? So they don't want the guards and, and thing, people like that to overhear what they're talking about. So it's secretive. So putting the camera behind... The, uh, the actors' heads like this sort of makes the audience think that we're not fully involved in the conversation. It's a private chat that we shouldn't really be eavesdropping on. So that creates a sense of privacy amongst the actors there that also then the guards aren't privy to this private conversation, if you see what I mean. If you don't see what I mean, then don't worry about it. I'm sure you'll be fine because you'll be running up that road, running up that hill, running up that building. Okay, and then the rest of the geography of that scene is awesome. So bear in mind, right, they're in a prison cell. Yeah, there's a big barred window area where they can look out onto the courtyard. But they are ultimately in a prison cell. Yet, the Doofa brothers direct this scene in a way where they use the geography of what they have so, so well, right? So they start off with that intimate chap on the bench, like I was talking about with the cameras behind their heads. And then Hopper gets up and he walks over to the bars and he starts... You know, sort of riffing off the top of his head in terms of like this, this personal, like reveal. This it's it's kind of a monologue, but the Russian guy interjects every now and then to sort of spur on. You know, the dialogue or questions and things like that. Um, and the lighting is really really nice. There's like an orange lamp hue that's like you know, uh, creating shadows from the bars of the prison cell. Um, and then like inside the prison cell is a bit more dark and cold lighting like a sort of blue lighting and then our outside is orangey so I don't know if that's like the warmth of freedom is outside and then the coldness of prison is inside or it might just be you know that they thought it looked cool Um, but as Hopper's sort of monologuing it is a duologue but as he's talking he starts talking about the monster the demogorgon that they have and then as it does that the camera sort of starts to move away from looking at Hopper and starts looking towards the door where we know the the monster's behind it. We know the Demogorgon's behind that door. So it starts to move to look at that and it frames it in a perfectly symmetrical shot, which if you've heard my Grand Budapest Hotel podcast, I talk about how you know most directors and stuff love a bit of symmetry because it looks great on screen. So it's, you know, symmetricized. That's a word I'm going to make up. It's symmetricized very nicely within the frame you know you've got the the bars the doors the um the catwalk of like the opposite sort of uh, balcony kind of thing um and then it flips around to hopper and the russian guy um and then starts to sort of slowly zoom in on them as hopper's talking which like is bringing us back into the intimacy of what he's talking about um and again when it's sort of backwards on them they're beautifully uh symmetricized uh, within that frame too i really hope symmetricized is the worst <laughs> it's definitely not um but either way so the point is they could have just had you know this scene in in the prison cell just doing short reverse shot back and forth on both these guys but no they've they've made us look outside the prison cell they've brought the camera outside the prison cell and zoomed it in on them they're really using the whole scope of what they have around this prison cell um it's it's brilliant also how bloody good is David Arbour like what an actor he really really wears his heart on his sleeve in his performances but then doesn't like over egg it I think I've spoken about this before with people like uh Robert De Niro where it's like if he's listening to someone there's David Arbour I mean as well as De Niro but if he's listening to someone he's just listening and then he'll respond he won't be like oh i need to respond angrily now let me emote on my face how angry i am while you're talking to me he's just listening and if he starts to feel angry you might just see like a change in his eyes or something like that i'm gonna sneeze and when he's when he's saying this monologue about you know uh his love of Elle, and you know his point being on the on this planet is to like try and help her and and things like that. He's not like. I feel like there's a sort of habit amongst amongst actors uh, to when they when they're telling like a a story about like a memory or something that happened, they'd be like, you know, they just throw in kind of bullshit emotion. They'd be like, you know, they could be saying something meaningful, and then they'd be like, oh, and then ah, oh, he said blah blah blah, and it's like, well, you don't need to emote the emotions that you felt back then or how you know it's really hard to explain but the point is David Arbour doesn't try and oversell anything he just just is it and does it and it's like that um oh what's the word it's like that nuanced subtle acting as opposed to like showy over the top don't get me wrong like some showy over the top acting isn't bad like an example I can think of, don't want this to sound like I'm insulting the man, but someone like uh James McAvoy, he's a brilliant, brilliant actor. I've never been disappointed with any performance he's ever produced. So don't make this think that you know he's he's this is an insult to him or anything. But he will always emote to like a ten. Well not always, but quite often he'll he'll swing he'll turn the dial up to ten. So like if he has to be like shocked or angry or sad or whatever it's always at an absolute 10 which is a trend in acting I've noticed for the last like I don't know maybe 10 or 15 years whereas I feel like someone like David Arbour is from a more old school of acting where it's you don't have to put everything up to 10 sometimes a 5 is all you need you know Um, if you don't get the point that I'm making I don't know maybe you haven't studied actors like I have or Maybe you have, and you still don't get the point I'm making, but I don't know what point I'm making, and I'm making this point. So, um, you know, if I only could make a deal with God and get him to swap our places. Ah, and then we get um, Winona Ryder and uh, the other dude with Yuri. Um, we get their story arc, which is very much like espionage, undercover, also like infiltrate and break out, which is, you know... The films that spring to mind in terms of that is like Mission Impossible, but obviously the tone of Mission Impossible is very action stunts. Don't get me wrong, I love that franchise, but the tone of their espionage and their like infiltrating and stuff, you know, is a bit more uh, like low key in a way. Not low key as in Thor's brother. I mean low key as in the L O W K E Y. It's low key, mate probably didn't need to explain that but there we go there's some really great um camera choices and directing in when we jump back to 11 um so we have the uh papa doing like an eye exam on her so the first shot we see is just a close-up on him with the torch shining like directly at the screen and then it pans around uh, sorry cuts around uh to the light shining on on l's eyes and then it cuts to like a wider where we can see um, you know both of them, and the fact that it's an eye operation. But I really like just sort of throwing the audience right into the middle of that exchange between them. Uh, and then a little bit later, when he's got the lineup and he's trying to figure out who bullied Eleven, and uh, he asks Number Two to step forward so that he can put that electro shot collar thing on him. Again, like I said, Papa's a bit of a weirdo. But when he says "collar him," we then hear like the the sound in this scene is really really cool. We hear like a kind of thing not like a shotgun loading but like it's like the shackles of this uh um necklace collar thing you know being moved um and it comes into frame and where it's a circle because it's a collar duh uh, the camera is nice and low and it's lined up perfectly so that like the circle of the collar uh within the sorry within the circle of the collar we see number two's face sort of in the distance and we see his panic and then as the guy with the collar moves up towards him the camera follows him and all the while he stays in the center of that circle of the collar like his face stays in the in the circle of the collar which is you know it's really obvious I'm sure everybody watching that saw what it was but it's just a really cool choice and a really cool decision because it's where we're always sort of following the collar and his face is always in the middle of it it's it's like an, an impending inevitability that this evil thing is about to get him and the fact that that noise of the like kind of thing of the collar being you know pulled out um, where that's all sort of loud and it's like cold harsh tones of the of the collar that implies a bit of danger or, or something you know unwelcoming um, and then the music in the background starts to amp, amp up, you know, um, very sort of Hans Zimmer in the sense that it's like a lot of long-held notes that are creating tension, you know, like a thing that sort of gets progressively louder and more intense. Um, yeah, the sound design and the direction in the scene is awesome. I love the the bit where we go back to like um Dustin and that. As they start trying to piece together, um, like I said, they're the investigatory side of it, you know, like they're like the the Velma from Scooby-Doo kind of thing. They're putting all the puzzle pieces together. Um, So they start breaking down like how these different gates are being opened, like Watergate, um, the one in the trailer, XYZ. Um, And I... So they could just have this conversation in one place and then, although, you know, it would be tense because of the things they're talking about, the music and the background building up, uh, the performance from the actors, you know, implying tension with um, the way they deliver the lines, and that would be, you know, fine. But what the Doofa Brothers do instead is they do a little bit of a wanna. There's definitely a couple of cuts in there, but it is a little bit like a wanna where they, they have the kids at the, like, kitchen counter talking and then one of the parents and a police officer come in, so they move them away to like the this sort of side by the stairs uh, which then implies a bit of like secrecy and urgency and then they get moved away again when another police officer goes in earshot uh they go like round into the living room and just moving where the conversation is adds to the sort of the secrecy and the tension of it whereas if they just had it in one place without any sort of risk of someone else overhearing it then there's no there's less secrecy and less tension um So it's just a real simple, cool way to, you know, A, move the geography of the scene a little bit more so it's less dormant, but then also, you know, add a bit of of tension to it. The chess scene between Eleven and the uh, orderly guy is pretty cool, um, where they're having, like, a very private chat in the sense that if they get overheard, they are screwed. Um, So all the shots are a reflection of that so most of them are like either close-ups or extreme close-ups directly on their faces or at the most it will be like um a profile shot of them there's i don't think there's a wide showing them both playing chess at the same time we get a few close-ups of the chessboard itself and then their actions on the chessboard are a reflection of the conversation they're having like when the orderly says like that she's in in danger she's going to be killed or something like that um you know implying something bad is going to happen to her he takes one of her chess pieces so something bad is happening to her figuratively on the board and then literally in real life and then well it's literally on the board too but the board is a representation figuratively you know what I mean and then when it sort of comes to like is Eleven going to be up to the challenge and able to sort of you know follow his instruction to try and save herself she takes one of his pieces so it's like Giving hope to Eleven that she is strong and capable and and will be able to do it. It's good. I know I say I love every scene, but I love the bit where they're playing with what's that toy called where you have lights and you make pictures by putting in the little pegs that will then shine? Whatever, you know. So you got Dustin and that lot in the real world with their setup on their end, and then all the like older teens, like Nancy and that lot. Uh, in the upside down trying to communicate through this lighting board and it's so good it's so good because you got you know the music when they figure out that it's a form of communication the music's like ah hope like it's all like nice and hopeful and then as they start figuring things out the music starts picking up like ding, 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 ding in that classic sort of like synth 80s vibe that strange things has and it starts getting more and more it's it's like it's coming to a crescendo like they're coming to some sort of success you know or or a way to like save their friends um and then all the while you've got like the brilliant dialogue of of them all sort of going back and forth trying to figure it out and then there's a few like really classic throwaway lines like um when dustin's like you can't get back through watergate but obviously like that's a sort of a coined phrase or an in joke that only Dustin and the people around him have had so they don't they have no idea what he's saying so they're like what what's Watergate and then they're like oh it's, it's a gate that's in the water and then like the metalhead guy Eddie's like oh that's cute like just throw away lines and then um when they say that the Watergate is guarded he's like oh we have Dustin's like oh we have a theory to help you out with that and then is it Robin or Ruby Uma Thurman's daughter She's like genius, child. <laughs> like, there's so many funny throwaway one-liners in this exchange, like just sewn in in between the essential dialogue. And what I mean by the essential dialogue is them actually figuring out how they can get them back into the real world. It's a really well-constructed scene. It's really, really good shit. Okay, so we're like just over halfway through, the, or pretty much bang on halfway through the episode at this point. And then there's another brilliant edit point. So again, with those edit points. I don't know if that's what it's called, but that's what I'm going to call it. So we have, we have, it's like an ET tribute, right? So you have like the four in the real world and then the four on the upside down, like uh, gunning it on bikes. Um, so, which is, you know, an ET tribute, basically. This is the vibes I get from it anyway. It's just, it's very ET. So they're, they're gunning it as quickly as they can on these push bikes. But the edit point is there's like a bird's eye view shot of the four in the real world like cycling along so we're over their head cycling and then the camera starts to come down in front of them towards the pavement so we see them like from the front as in they're coming towards the camera and then the camera sort of morphs through the pavement into the upside down and then comes up at the front of like Steve and Nancy and everybody who's in the upside down and like sort of then mirrors it so let's it's an edit point because we have the motion it's always a safe bet to do a cut or do an edit when there's motion. So it could be someone moving off screen, someone handing someone something. So doing this edit point where the camera is the thing that's moving and seeing the the cyclists is like a pretty straightforward way to do it. But I love that it it morphs through the floor and then comes up in the upside down because, again, it's reinforcing the whole notion and the premise of the upside down. But then it's also just a really cool-ass way to, to do an edit. So then we go back to Hopper and uh, Joyce and everybody in the Russian prison. Um and they they really sort of start building up the tension with like a lot of like slow pans either you know across people's uh, expressions, you know like across um uh, his name's not Yuri, the bloke who's with Joyce and and Joyce like does lots of like slow pans across their uh, faces to sort of see their worry and their concern. Uh, there's like slow zooms in on um, Hopper and uh, all his Russian mates and stuff as they prepare to fight this thing. There's like slow zooms in towards the the door where the uh, Demogorgon's gonna jump out from, uh, and all the while the music in the background. There's you know there's a few sort of like war drums like dung dong dung. and then as it starts to amp up a bit, it's, there's like a, a quicker sort of almost like electric drum like din 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 that starts building up. It's, it's all layering to add tension to it, and it's really, really cool. And then eventually, you know, we get the... It all kicks off. And then it does something very clever before it kicks off, um, which I've definitely seen in other things before, but it's an awesome way to do it. Just as it's all about to kick off, all that music and tension and everything I was talking about building up, they just stop it. All of it stops. There was a few rumbles of the monster before as well, you know, growls and things. All of that stops, and then it zooms into, like, the, the blackness of this dark corridor where it's going to come from and holds there for ages. And if it was any other episode, you know, it's an hour in at this point you think, "Oh, the episode's finished because it holds for that long." And then the monster like launches itself out of the of the hole um and just starts attacking people. And then the, again there's no music for that part. It's 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 effectively a short one to really early on in that fight. It does cut eventually and, you know, stops being a wanna, but as the monster leaps out and kills the first like i don't know three or four people all you it's all done in one continuous take so again that's upping the the tension but it also makes it seem like it's an unstoppable force and it's all happening so quickly because like where there aren't any cuts in it already it's killed like four people and there hasn't been any cuts which is just that holy shit, this monster is an unstoppable force it's killed so many people so quickly Um, And then the fact that there's no music or any sound effects, sorry, any, any other sound than the sound effects of the monster killing people, you know, like the screams, the sounds of like, you know, like bones being crushed or like limbs being torn off or like the monster moving and, you know, digging its claws into people and things like that. Those are the only sounds. So there's nothing to distract the audience from those sounds. So it's very like it's an overwhelming assault on the senses that this thing is uh, it's overwhelming the soldiers and the russians physically and it's just an unstoppable force it's a real great use to like reduce the amount of like sound uh, engineering going into the scene like bring it down a bit pull it to its bare basics no music or nothing no cuts just bam unstoppable fucking fury from this uh monster and how adorable is that moment where um hopper and joyce are reunited again it, it sort of harkens back to, or is it Hawkins? Because that's where Strange Things is set. Um, no, it harkens back to what I was saying before about David Arbour's just insane ability to just do these beautiful, nuanced, subtle performances. Because like, at, at this point, Hopper has no idea that Joyce is there. He has no idea that she's been trying to get him out and she was the one that opened the doors that allowed them to get away from the Demogorgon just in time. Because it wouldn't have been way in advance of time, because there would be no tension or suspense there, would there? Uh, But no, they do it just in time. And then as they open the new doors, uh, he walks out into the the room where Joyce is going to be, but obviously he doesn't know that. And then the music sort of drowns out any diegetic sound from the room. So it's almost like being, you're almost like shell-shocked by this beautiful score that comes in, because in that moment David Arbour as Hopper is shell-shocked by the fact that he didn't expect to see Joyce there he has no idea he's going to be there so he's just stunned and surprised or at least that's what I pick up of his performance that's what's great about nuanced performance is you can sort of put your own interpretation onto it so my interpretation is that he's just stunned into silence by seeing the woman that he loves there because he didn't expect to see her but he's not He's not really overselling it. He's just sort of quietly stunned and he he's so stunned by seeing her there that he doesn't ha- he he doesn't do anything himself. He's not like, Oh my god, I'll hug you He's just like What? Holy shit And even that is probably like an over like, an over explanation of it. Like he's not even to that extent. Either way, if you don't know what I mean, just like watch it back and you'll see what I mean. He's just sort of beautifully shocked. And, like, happy to see her, but in a real subtle, nuanced way, as I've said. Okay, so then when we're back with Eleven in the psych ward or whatever it is, then it starts getting real, um, like, psychological horror as opposed to psychological thriller. So we're finally going to see, like, what the massacre was. Was it Elle's fault? Did she do it? And all of that. But then, obviously, um, huge spoiler alert. So, Jamie Campbell Bauer, who's playing the friendly orderly, um, you know, it's revealed that he is number one. You know, she's number 11, there's number two, she's number one. Uh, Sorry, he's number one. Um, And then she basically takes out... Eleven takes out this, like, chip that he's got in him that's been suppressing his powers, and then he tells her to hide in a cupboard, and then he goes on a bit of a rampage. So, she leaves the cupboard that she's hiding in and then it starts to become apparent that he's been up to no good this Jamie fella you know there's blood on the walls there's dead or unconscious people everywhere um there's screams coming through a walkie talkie these you know little layering bits to let us know something's awry and then as she starts to see more and more you know like victims of of Jamie's A lot of the shots on Eleven will be real close-up reactions to her, so it's, like, it's sort of showing that everything is, like, right there in front of her, like, no escape from it kind of thing by using these close-ups. And then also, a lot of the shots of the victims and things will be either, like, quick pans or just sort of... um, They're only, like, flashed on screen briefly, you know, it's all, like, quick cuts and everything, so we're not dwelling too much on, you know, like, a lot of these sort of unfortunate dead children and things like that, but it's more... Um, to just sort of get through it quickly, to sort of show how quickly he's gotten gotten through everybody. Literally, is it like he's just laying waste to all these people? Um, and yeah, the with the music and the sort of quick cuts and the close ups and everything it is a lot more of a sort of th- horror than a thriller um, at this point. And as well, there's there's been a real tonal shift between how Jamie was as disorderly um, before the chip comes out and then afterwards. Like, he's real nice and sort of caring and charming and things before. And then after the chip comes out, all of a sudden, he's just, like, cold and callous and ruthless. And then 111 finds him in the the Rainbow Room, taking his final victim, which is number two. Um, ah, something that they do as well. Like, after he kills that last dude, he sort of starts, like, doing this wheeze breathing, which... and and then for the first time his nose starts to run, like the nosebleed that Eleven gets every time she uses her powers. So he's killed everybody in the building, and then only on the last victim did he start to get a nosebleed, which I think shows, is, is the Doofa Brothers' way of showing how powerful this character is. Because if he's used so much power, and now he's only showing signs of a nosebleed, whereas Eleven can, like, I don't know, open a door and she'll start getting a nosebleed. Do you know what I mean? The level of power between those two people. Um, but then to have him sort of doing this wheezing breathing as well is also showing that he is a little bit exerted at this point. But it's the first time he's been anything other than like, you know, nice and charming. Well, let's say the first time, you know, the last sort of couple of minutes he's been on screen or whatever um, is him being completely callous. But I'm pretty confident that he doesn't blink throughout this entire scene that he's in the rainbow room he's just really like he has this horrible stare this like dead cold angry stare that's just unyielding he doesn't blink at all and it's a really really great performance from him in this scene where you know we it starts to reveal you know who who he is what his plan is and everything you know so sort of the plot points start coming together. There's a couple of points through his sort of like monologuing exposition, you know, because it's so. You always when there's been a mystery, you always have to have the villain at the end do a bit of monologuing and exposition just to fill in the blanks for the audience. It's it's um cliche in a way, but not in a bad way. Like sometimes it's necessary. And uh, Jamie Campbell Bower does such a great performance in this final. I I don't I don't think I'm this guy's ever sort of appeared on my radar before. I think I've seen stuff that he's been in. Um, but this was the first thing I'd seen where I was like, whoa, who is this guy? He's awesome. Um, yeah, so when he's monologuing and stuff, he has a few minor outbursts where he might raise his voice or get a bit angry or something, but most of it is very, um, not monotone, but it's very sort of, he's just, you know, saying it like it is sort of thing, just telling his story, not overselling it. Um, then we also he also sort of reveals his motives you know and it's always important to have a villain with believable motives you know like for example to use a big famous common example someone like Thanos uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe like a lot of people can sort of understand where he's coming from although you don't necessarily agree with him or his uh, execution of you know uh his beliefs but a lot of people are like yeah I kind of see where you're coming from but you're going about it the wrong way. Uh that made Thanos that much more of an interesting villain because he actually had like a real sort of purpose and and reason for doing what he's doing. So when he's when um disorderly uh, Jamie starts monologuing about what his motives are and he starts questioning, you know, like everybody just sort of wasting their their time where he goes like uh, minutes hours days weeks years whatever it is um and he's like says something about like you know wake up work eat sleep repeat kind of thing like he's the the monotonous monotony yeah the monotony of just you know everyday life and everything is like sickening to him um so it's quite a uh like highbrow sort of um large concept take for a villain to have and it's pretty interesting um because you know quite often you'll see some like hacky show or hacky film and it's like i just want to be rich you know whereas he actually has like a real high concept motive for sort of doing what he's doing he the geography of that scene uh, between him and 11 they kind of do a lot of just him pacing back and forward and things I've noticed is that when he's across the room from her tends to be when he's like angrier and you know a bit raises voice a little bit more raises intensity and then as he walks back across to her um you know and he might like you know sort of touch her under the chin or something like that um then he tends to sort of be a bit more nuanced and almost like I don't know not sweet but you know he's a bit sort of like calmer and more persuasive as opposed to like angry um but yeah a lot of that a lot of the camera work you know will be sort of either doing like a pullback track or you know tracking into his face or eleven's face or something you know like I've said before creating tension that way or just close-ups on them or sometimes wides of like you know both of them opposite each other in the room or you know shots from a distance it's all relatively simple but it all works and it doesn't need to be doing too much over the top anyway because it would distract from the dialogue that Jamie's saying which is the important part you know it's 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 revealing all the big reveals to the audience I'm talking about this scene a lot but it's a really good scene um the first moment where Elle says that she's not going to join him join me my young apprentice sorry this scene just gives me Star Wars vibes because he's all like I'm evil join me which is like you know every Star Wars villain um but yeah L says no I'm not going to join you and like force pushes him across the room and then so he's on the floor and as he starts to get up like the camera's low look, sort of looking at his face because he's on the floor and then as he stands up the camera doesn't follow him up it just tilts up so then we ha- he's got like his game face on he's going to be like you know that I'm going to kill you kind of face on and so where the camera's looking up at him as he you know stands fully up It then that just having the camera looking up at him is like a status thing because it shows that he's, you know, um, quite superior and and powerful and strong because he's, like, high in frame. Simple shot, but it um, helps the audience sort of think that L's in, you know, a bit more peril and a bit more danger because of this. we know this guy's so strong and that that shot is reflecting his sort of power superiority. Ah, and then it ends with her, you know, sending him into another dimension, into the upside down, um, creating the... What do you call it? The the first sort of gateway, and then it was you know then made abundantly clear that he is um, Vector, which uh, yeah it's a great it's a great script it's a great script like the the writing and the pieces coming together and the the sort of the whole season has just been fan bloody fantastic. Um, I love Stranger Things. It's bloody great. You know, like, early on the first season or two, it was very much, like, sort of Goonies vibes mixed with a bit of Alien, and it was sort of, like, you know, it wasn't, like, too childish, there was definitely enough mature stuff in there, but now, like, as the kids have got older, they've been able to, like, sort of up the scares a little bit more, make it a bit more adult bit more mature you know so like instead of it being a bit spooky now it's like scary and instead of there being like a bit of violence before now there's like blood and bodies exploding and stuff so like i think it's good as well because a lot of people that would also have been into stranger things when it first came out which i don't know how old is it now it's, it's a few years old because they haven't released them every, even though this is only season four they haven't released them every year there's been like gaps in between um let me just quickly imdb when the first one came out but uh, 2016, okay, yeah, so it's been going six years. So even, say if you were you were 10 when you watched the first season, you're now 16. So what you can tolerate in terms of, like, childishness and maturity changes over that time. So it's, it's very smart. And also, as well, you know, those kids would have grown and matured and, and be a little bit more hardcore than they previously were. I know it's not six years for them. I think it's only, like, three or four years for them. But even so... Um, so, it's very intelligent of the creators to, like, allow scope for growth. Um, but it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, I really can't wait to see what the next couple of episodes are to sort of cap off Season 4. And I think they've confirmed a Season 5. But I think they confirmed that as the fifth and final. So, I really can't wait to see what they do with it. It's it's brilliant. Um, it's so good. Um, so, that is the pod for this week. Um... I'm going to go listen to Kate Bush. Bye.